0: Hello, this is Vulnerability Matters from the Money Advice Trust, our podcast series which examines from a range of different perspectives how firms are tackling the issue of consumers in vulnerable situations. Today's podcast was recorded in front of a live internet studio audience bringing together people from across the UK, so therefore you might notice the sound quality in some parts does reflect this. Hello there, welcome to Vulnerability Matters from the Money Advice Trust. Today, we're talking about gambling. One third of a million of us are problem gamblers. On average, one problem gambler commits suicide every day. The young are most at risk, but the harm goes wider. So read the dramatic opening words of the recent House of Lords Select Committee report into the social and economic impact of the gambling industry. Putting aside its choice of language, some of us may possibly wince at problem gambler or commit suicide, commentators have held the report as highly significant. Firstly, for its recognition that any new legislation needs to look not just at the gambling industry, but also other wider sectors that have a role too. And secondly, for the further pressure the report places on the government to deliver its manifesto pledge to review the 2005 Gambling Act, which so many see as outdated and not fit for the digital age we live in. So what has this all got to do with financial services? Well, nestled among the report's 50 recommendations, is a very significant call for financial services to make bank card gambling blockers a standard feature across the industry. So this prompts the question, just what is a bank card gambling blocker? What controls should they offer customers? And is it really a bank's business to tackle gambling related harm or a step too far and none of their business at all? To help us with these questions today, we're joined by Alexandra Freen, Head of Corporate Affairs at Starling Bank, the first bank in the UK to introduce a bank card gambling blocker. Tony Franklin, an expert by experience on gambling, and arguably the person who first brought the need for bank card gambling blockers to the attention of the financial services sector. Sharon Collard, director of the University of Bristol's Personal Finance Research Centre and co-author with Jamie Evans, of a blueprint for bank card gambling blockers, which is new research funded by GambleAware. And Matt Gaskell, a consultant psychologist and clinical director of the NHS Northern Gambling Service, which has its clinics in Leeds, Manchester and Sunderland. And of course, we're also joined by you, our live audience, who I can already see are getting their questions in using the ask a question function and chat features on their screen. So, Sharon, I wondered if we could start with you by just asking, what is a bank card gambling blocker?
1: Hi, Chris. Hi, everyone. Um Yeah. So just to say that the review that we published yesterday focuses on eight banks and credit card firms that currently... Um, make gambling blocks available to all of their credit and debit card customers as a standard feature. So they're available for anybody to use um, on their credit or debit card. And we also know that other firms will do this on a kind of case by case basis. So somebody would need to um, contact their bank or credit card lender for that to happen. But our focus was on the eight banks and credit card firms that make them available. Um, so what are they? Well, from the customer side, Um, If you're a customer of one of those eight banks or a credit card firm, you have the option to activate the gambling block, for example, through um, a banking app. And when it's activated, what that means is the block prevents the customer from being able to pay for gambling using their credit card or their debit card. Um, The customer can choose to turn the block off whenever they want, it's not a permanent thing. Just at the other end, so at the bank or the credit card end, um, every transaction that we make on a card is classified um, using something called a merchant category code, and that kind of categorises it into a number of standard um, classifications about the types of things that we're spending. So once the block's activated, the, um, the credit or the debit card, firm, sorry, the bank or the credit card firm automatically checks in real time whether the transaction is classified as gambling via the merchant category code and if it is classified as gambling then the payment should be declined and the gambling operator would would see that that payment's been declined
0: Sharon how, how well are these uh these blockers working
1: so the review that we conducted and and the data that was shared with us by financial services firms and um, suggested that blockers are technically effective which is great news um and they do block the, the majority of um, gambling transactions. There, we did um, hear about some instances where gambling transactions um, aren't, are able to go through even where a block is in place. And that seems to be uh, perhaps due to something called transaction laundering, where operators, unscrupulous operators, might use a different merchant category code to get around blockers, either for gambling or other types of uh,
0: spend. We'll come back to the, the data issue because I think that's really important in terms of access to uh, bank data both in terms of uh, transactions and also the affordability issue but Tony kind of listening in there as a someone with a, a lot of personal and, and professional experience in, in this sector would a bank card gambling blocker have made any difference to your experience of gambling?
2: Hi Chris and, and um, everyone um, I think the, um, the report um, survey and and data that you've collected uh, within the report um, suggests that it does make a difference and that actually it's a um, really important um, tool um, and actually more needs to be done as well to make people um, aware of the tool because I think 43% um, of respondents to your uh, interviews uh, were not aware um, of the existence of the blocker and those were people who've all um, experienced gambling harm in one way or another and um, are possibly and quite likely um, in treatment as well and still were not aware of it. But um, of those those people who were aware of it and had activated the blocker, I think the report said that more than half of those people had either spent less uh, or spent nothing at all since they had um, activated the blocker. So I think there's a lot of evidence there to to suggest that they really do um, work. My own personal experience of gambling blockers well, it goes back over a decade, actually, when um, a bank um, put a block on my um, um, cards and um, it was very effective for me personally um, in in stopping me being able to spend um, on on gambling sites. The issue comes though, and again, the report talks about this, um, when different banks um, have different approaches and as many of us will know, uh, or those who know about gambling addiction, Um, will know that gamblers do have a tendency to look for workarounds. And and obviously, if there are other banks that don't have a block, then um, there there is always the um, possibility that the the disordered gambler will just simply open a new account. So I think it's really important now that we've got effective blockers out there with the time release lock, um, that um, all the banks in this country sort of standardise and offer the same product. So that would be my comments. It's
0: good. We got a very interesting point raised by Chris on the uh, the questions, which is uh, along the lines of, well, it's great having a, a block uh, for one bank, but what if I want to block all my banks uh, from uh, from uh, uh, these processing these expenditure on on gambling? Is is that the way forward, Tony?
2: I, I think anything we can do to simplify this for, for people I mean we have to if, if we put ourselves in the, the the mindset of somebody who's probably at rock bottom I and mean, that's certainly when I've been sort of desperately looking around for what tools can support me in my recovery and I, I think you know that there's no one tool in itself that you know captures all of the the, 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 the issues but you know if we could simplify it where yeah, there was a central database or, or a central site you would log on to that says yes please please block all my um debit and credit cards and that just went off to you know all, all the banks um if that was possible um and i don't know whether it is then obviously the easier this is that would help a lot
1: i was just going to say on that point that um in the report we did look at there were some other suggestions actually to address the point that chris has raised so perhaps actually having gambling blocks as a default on all credit and debit cards. So the default would be that you have to turn turn it on so that you can gamble rather than turn it off so that you can't. So I think there are some, there were definitely um, from the people that we talked to in the research who had experience of gambling harm, um, definitely the appetite, as Tony says, to kind of create that those different layers of, of security around themselves to try and prevent um, prevent themselves from from gambling.
0: Matt, you're you listening in there. I was wondering thinking and telling us a little bit about the the, the clinic clinical services that you run, where, where do these blockers really sit in the range of options to allow people to control their gambling? Are are they a bit of technological window dressing or, or do they have a real and valid role to play? Good morning.
3: They have a very good place. I think as Tony said, it's it's a tool. It's it's part of a, a suite of interventions that you can do fairly early on. Um with our service users, I mean, I wouldn't use the word control for us. where um, given the severity of harm that we see. It's um, pretty much always the case that people are coming in looking for an abstinence goal. Um, so it fits alongside the self-exclusion schemes. Some are better than others there as well. Um, so when people have have, have worked through their own personal intrinsic motivation to to change their behavior and they're ready to commit to to stop gambling then one of the one of the early interventions that that fits well is to look at how you curb opportunity availability accessibility to gambling because they are at this point they've gone through a very long-term habit pattern where um, there's a range of what we call in behavioral psychology condition stimuli which signal gambling behavior and the reinforcement that goes with that. So um, so what we want to do is help them with the strong urges and cravings that they experience. And this is one of the ways of doing it. So if you can if you can deal with um, um, essentially taking gambling off the menu with um, you know not, not allowing the opportunity to gamble, this is one of the you know one of the better ways to do that that said there are some limitations here and I think that what the report does quite well is acknowledge that there's much further that we need to go there are there are obviously the coverage is an issue um, but also there are issues around um, the time lock versus the toggle and mm-hmm. and the immediateness of being able to, to switch and, and, and to continue to gamble that's very problematic for us in, in 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 this area. So we would tend to prefer those um, those blocks which are, which give the 48 hour um, time lock. We would like other options as well for much longer term blocks, and we, perhaps we can talk about that. Um, mm. But certainly certainly with our service users, motivation is extremely volatile, even though they've made a commitment to stop gambling. Um, it's just human nature with a deeply learned behavior like this where you've got strong urges and cravings that that motivation is going to be very volatile certainly for a for a reasonable period of time so so having the inability to to make a gambling transaction is extremely important and provides our service users with a, a very good safety net um, as we've said there's 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 a way to go though i think to, to get to um you know something that's that's more effective i think there's much more we can do
0: We'll come back to this issue of, uh, of, of responsibility on the individual to instigate action uh, around the gambling blocks, um, because in terms of uh, addiction and compulsion, there's a very interesting uh, tension there in expecting someone who's um, compelled to gamble to actually take that step to turn the gambling blocker on to so it's, it's active. So let's let's come to that. But Alex, Alexandra, uh, listening in there, Starling were the first bank. To introduce a, a, a gambling blocker back in 2018. There was no real noise around gambling then as compared to there is now. Why did you do it?
4: Thanks very much uh, for having me on and uh, thank you to everyone who's uh, contributing to this debate. As a, as a bank, I just want to say that we want to listen to everybody's experiences of these things and learn and that, that's how we build our products. We did this because um, Starling is a new bank. We're an app-only bank. We launched in app stores in 2017 and one of our ideas was to look at what do customers need and want. So we were going through the whole gamut of things and we were talking to um, Money Mental Health Institute and other organizations. And we were also talking to Tony who's who's on this uh, webinar as well, Tony Franklin, and uh, who explained to us about the potential for gambling blockers. And we thought, well why not? Why wouldn't we do this? So we introduced our gambling block um, uh, in June 2018 followed swiftly after by Monzo, another app-only bank that did the same. Um, We didn't have a 48-hour delay in in switching the uh, gambling transactions back on initially. We have now. Uh, Monzo did that from from the beginning. So we've learned from the community about that. And we, we just sort of thought, why not? And I don't know why the other banks haven't done this because it's not a complicated bit of engineering to do, or certainly it wasn't for us because we've got brand new technology platform. And I think that going forward, this has to be something that's tackled at an industry level. So I'm trying to engage the other banks. Um, it's, it's gratifying to see that other banks have followed suit and done something like this. But I think to the point raised earlier, um, we need to um, work together as a banking industry to do this so that we've got very similar um, uh, products in place so that people don't um, try and ma- manipulate the system through um, switching uh spending from different cards uh, mm. but but we, we we just did it because we could um, I and uh, we're grateful to the people in working in this sector and we and we spoke to some of the um uh, you know gamble aware and other non-profits about this who, who who encouraged us to do it
0: okay and is is information uh used from a blocker being turned on in any of for any other purposes at starling sometimes we hear people saying They're a little worried that if they turn it on, uh, that information will be used in other ways. So, for example, making a a lending decision or a decision about an overdraft.
4: No, no, absolutely. It isn't. And uh, the interesting thing about our gambling block is that a high proportion of customers have, have put the block on and never would never have previously or are not gamblers or not people that that undertake any gambling activity at all. they just put it on because they can. it's in the app. it's a feature they think um, uh, so no it's not used for anything else.
2: Could I just come in on that point because I think that's really interesting the issue of um, people switching on the blocker who don't perhaps gamble today and I think um, part of that is down to the increased public awareness of the risks of gambling um, and, and you know the, the discussion that's going on um, you know obviously in the media on the television around gambling and gambling harms. And of course, we don't know, perhaps that individual doesn't gamble, but perhaps somebody in their family does gamble and they're therefore more aware of the risks, perhaps, of their card being taken um, and misused. Um, And and I think, you know, from a preventative standpoint, which, you know, is really what we're talking about here. How do we prevent people getting themselves into such um, a mess in the first place? I think anybody that takes the action to switch or uh, to activate the blocker um I, I think that's a really positive thing and I think that should be celebrated and and again you know the more awareness of this product and one of the um, one of the banks has actually done quite a clever um informational push where when you log on to the app it it makes you aware at the log on screen that there is now the ability to freeze gambling transactions and I really like this because I think it all adds to prevention.
0: So Sharon, let us let, let's, let's get let's drill down into some of this detail and also take some more questions. We've got absolutely loads coming in. So Starling were the first bank to launch a blocker, but there are only eight, I think you said, that have followed suit. So why is that?
1: It was great that Starling took that step in twenty eighteen and actually another seven financial services firms have come on stream since then. Um, to offer bank card gambling blocks to all of their customers um, and they include five of the big high street banking groups which between them cover a lot of brands so we've got Barclays and Barclay Card, HSBC, Lloyds which also covers brands like NBNA Royal Bank of Scotland which includes NatWest and Santander um, plus as, as Alexandra mentioned Monzo and Cash Plus which are all the newer entrants um, so, along with Starling, that makes up the eight that we looked at in our review. Um, we did try to um, estimate the collective market share of those eight players, um, and we came—we estimated that the potential reach is around 60% of personal current accounts and at least 40% of credit cards. So. You can see there's some quite big gaps there in terms of the number of people, number of customers who might not have access on their on their cards. Um, and that we that's about maybe 28 million personal current accounts and around 35 million credit cards that don't have that access to a card gambling block. Um, so we can see there, as Alexandra and Tony said, you know, um, there's work to be done in terms of making sure um, both that they are available but also that people know about them which i think as tony highlighted from the research there's you know low awareness even amongst people who um are are trying to work through their gambling problems
0: sharon just just so people are clear why is it important that there is a a a block on credit cards given the gambling commission has banned uh british-based gambling operators accepting credit card payments
1: Yeah it's a really great question Chris and something that we um, did look at in the research and I think we came to the conclusion that it was still really important um, for credit card firms to offer gambling blocks firstly because we're in the fairly early days of the um, commission ban so it's only been in place since April we're not quite sure how that's working in practice I think Um, as you rightly say the ban only applies to gambling operators who are licensed to operate in Britain which is the gambling commission's remit um, so that they won't be accepting credit card payments from customers in England Scotland and Wales um, but there are online gambling sites outside of Britain of course which aren't licensed by the gambling commission and so they could continue to allow customers in Britain to gamble via credit card payments um, and the other thing actually the devil is always in the detail with these things isn't it so and while the ban applies to all online and offline gambling products, actually, it doesn't apply to non-remote lotteries. So what does that mean in practice? Well, it means that you could still buy a national lottery ticket or a scratch card in the supermarket as part of your bigger shop with a credit card. Um, so there are some there's some gaps there, I think, that, that mean it is still important for, for people to be able to put on a... a block on their on their credit card I think it comes back to um, what Matt and um, Tony was saying earlier as well it's about it's not just one safety net it's having several safety nets mm. um, so I think um, it, at least in, in the short to medium term that it's really important that, that those safety nets still exist
0: so I've got a question here from um, uh, Megan um, and I put this one to Alex Alex, um, how, how are we going to get the industry to um, adopt? And like the House of Lords co- calls this an industry-wide protocol. How do we get uh, the industry to adopt and promote gambling blocks? Because um, Martin has also added, you know, surely it's simply a case of the FCA mandating this. There should be blocks on all cards.
4: I think it would be much better for the for people like me in the banking industry to get uh, through UK finance which is the umbrella organization for financial institutions to uh, do this voluntarily and to uh, get people together so I am talking to UK finance about this when we're trying to get people on board to be honest banks have been a bit distracted the last few months um, yeah. after the um, House of Lords uh, inquiry session that I took part in you know I, I, I made a commitment there that uh, I would become more active within UK finance to try and get this to happen yeah I mean we could go down the regulatory route um I would much rather it the banks did it because they recognized the value of it I think that would be better.
0: Uh, Tony uh, do you agree with Alexandra?
2: Yes I mean I think it certainly will be much quicker if the banks were to do this um voluntarily I think that there is the question of data and and using data to inform the 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 scale of the problem there was an interesting single data point that was published uh, earlier on this year um, from one of the big banks that did an analysis that showed of three quarters of a million uh, current accounts um, 10 percent of their customer base were spending more than 25 percent of their income um on gambling which seemed to be an incredibly high spend amount and i think um banks do have a wealth of transactional data and it wouldn't be that difficult for them to construct a kind of severity curve um that looked at different data points you know on that scale from zero to a hundred percent you know spending on gambling at, at different um percentage points of their customer base 10 20 30 etc And I think that could really help them inform, um, you know, their their thinking as well, because, you know, there is a real issue with with, with gambling. It's a huge hidden problem. um, And the banks, you know, can really, you know, they are already starting to do great work in this in, in, in this space. And so, yeah, I think, you know, I would echo Alexandra's comments there and say that, you know, working collaboratively across the industry on this is the way to go.
0: Okay, okay, so I guess it's not hidden uh, in terms of transaction data, a hidden addiction, uh, Matt, in terms of perhaps everyday life, but not in terms of banking data. Magdalena's raised a question here, and I'd be really interested, Matt, on your views on whether this should be uh, a voluntary self-policing introduction or regulatory uh, or in legislation. Um, Magdalena's saying, well, we know that people under 30 are at particularly high risk of gambling-related harm so surely blockers should be default. Every card turned on if you're under 30. What's your position on that?
3: Yeah, I think I think the first thing to recognise is that within treatment services, this has become one of the one of the tools that we use. But it's worth remembering that treatment services in the UK only see a tiny proportion of people who experience gambling harm. It really is a fraction. Um, the latest prevalence survey. Um, It was a YouGov survey um, a couple of months ago Um, that yielded a a number of um, a number um, of 1.4 million adults who have gambling disorder. Um, Now, you can challenge methodologies for these different prevalence surveys, but we're all worried about the extent of of gambling harm. And obviously, at at the more addiction end, that, again, is just a fraction of the overall harm that there is out there. So I think the point I'm trying to make is. Um, that these gambling blocks are not well known. And even though those of us that are using them in the treatment sector, it's still only a fraction. The other point is around responsibility and the burden of responsibility being on the individual. And I think those of us who work in this sector um, and who understand gambling harm and understand how that process unfolds and how much that um, bears down on an individual's Personal choice for their behaviour and distorts decision making and judgment and so on, and how insidious the process is. In my view, we need to do an awful lot more from a public health perspective. Um, and that, you know, there's a number of ways we could go about that. Um, I don't think, you know, with the, the industry, the gambling industry, there's been calls on the gambling industry to introduce affordability um, and proper affordability checks. I think that's been pretty well resisted and continues to be resisted. Um, so I think, there's a, I think there's a role for the financial sector here. I know that this perhaps sounds a bit radical, but where you've got individuals on a fairly modest income, generally, that's, that's, that's generally where the most harm exists. Um, and, you know, there's a long history of, of harm markers and, and, you know, they're continually using their disposable income and way beyond that with credit and loans and payday loans and other forms. Um, of, of gambling transactions, it, it's always felt morally questionable for me that that's that's we've just all sat back and thought, well, we're in a we're in an era of of sort of you know light touch regulation and deregulation and it, it's all about freedom and free market and so on. Um, just allowing people who have clearly got you know real difficulties um, in this area, I've, I've always found that very very difficult. Um, myself and Mm -hmm. I think we ought to have a more of a grown-up conversation about addiction there's and and gambling harm there's there's a lot of ignorance out there about how it impacts on an individual and their their judgment and their decision making and how insidious that process is
0: Stephen Ramsey's asking exactly the uh, same question for uh, and maybe, Alexandra, you could you, you could start us off on this before we then come back onto uh, time locks. So the affordability issue, a gambling operator's uh, ability to uh, take stock of whether someone can actually afford to gamble with them. Um, that was raised at the, uh, the House of Lords evidence session. Um, where is Starling on this issue of affordability?
4: Well, I, I would just like to sort of step back. I think this is a really, really interesting, but also a complex point. It's is that um, uh, at Starling and a lot of other banks too, we do look at affordability, but not in relation to um, gambling specifically. If we have customers that are constantly in overdraft and constantly unable to uh, repay that overdraft, we will reach out to them and try and uh, come up with some tailor made uh, solution for them to help get them out of debt. But that won't be because they're gambling necessarily. Gambling may be the reason, but it may be because they're spending on other things or they had some kind of interruption in their normal life. You do not want the banks to become the lifestyle police. It is not the bank's job to tell you what to spend your money on Um, at Starling, you can't go into an unarranged overdraft um, and if you're in an arranged overdraft you can't repay we will help you regardless of how you got there you do not want private companies uh, who are run by CEOs who are not elected um, telling people what they can and cannot spend their money on Um, the job of uh, a bank is to hold people's money securely and to enable them to transact we don't Make judgments on how they spend their money, other than if they can't afford it. And I, I, you know, the reason the gambling blocks exist is because of the merchant codes for gambling, make it make it relatively straightforward to identify those transactions. Um, you can't really do the same for other highly addictive um, behaviors such as alcohol, because people might be buying the alcohol from the supermarket, and um, so you, you're mixing in your your alcohol with your toilet rolls and your um beef burgers so i think i think it's an interesting idea but this is a public health issue and it needs to be dealt yeah. with as at government level and as a public health issue not uh, that um uh, i mean just people are people are so ready to criticize banks and bank ceos uh, for all kinds of things are those the people that you want deciding what you can spend your money on no no
0: mm. No, and, and on this on this podcast series, we certainly have talked about all the steps that have been taken uh, around COVID nineteen and how financial services have stepped up. So we do have that balance. But is that Tony wanting to come in there?
2: Yeah, I, I'd like to come in. Actually, I mean, I, I agree with Alexandra. This is a very uh, complex area. It's a very interesting discussion. Um, and um, I think my comments would be that the the, the banks do have policy areas where they you know set limits already um, and, and cash withdrawals um, from the ATM or over the counter which wouldn't apply to Starling because it's an app bank um, they're in existence which put a limit on you know what you can spend and I think that is one possible lens by which they could look at this um, whether it's a made publicly available that there's there's a limit but again in terms of um, stepping in to force an intervention where the data shows that somebody is you know maybe starting to rapidly um that their spending on gambling starts starting to rapidly escalate um, i mean how much i suppose damage do we let somebody do financially you know five hundred thousand ten thousand a million at the moment there just doesn't seem to be any limit so i think that is one area which is certainly worthy of a discussion Um, I just want to come back very quickly on the previous point about issuing bank cards that are already default set um, so you can't spend on gambling. And I think there has to be a balance here because clearly, um, you know, gambling is a legal industry, but there is a huge amount of harm there as well. The House of Lords survey report talks about children gambling, I think 50,000 Children mentioned as now being hooked to gambling, that's a huge problem. Um, As well, we know there's a convergence of gaming and gambling, um, and um, even children spending huge sums of money um, on um, loot boxes, thousands of pounds worth of, you know, it's kind of um, enormous. So there is a real issue there. And I think where, you know, I think somebody having their first bank account when they reach 18, we need to look at ways that we can, you know, break the chain of people just going from gaming, which is a similar product, very, um, um, you know, very um, fast, very sort of, um, you know, immersive, and has a lot of the same addictive properties as gambling, and then just sort of throwing them off the cliff edge into the the gambling world. And, And then we're seeing people get themselves in, into real devastating, you know, mm. situations before their life has really even got underway as an adult. So I mm. think those are the areas that we could be looking at.
0: That's really interesting. And if I was a bank, I'd probably uh, not only be reviewing uh, adult accounts at the moment in terms of thinking about uh, blockers, uh, merchant uh, category codes, but also some of the products aimed at younger consumers. But let's let's focus in on a number, and that number is 48. And that number's significant because it creeps up, Sharon, time and time again in terms of time release locks. Could you just explain a bit more about what these time release locks are and why 48 is significant?
1: The the gambling blocks, as I mentioned at the beginning, um, they're obviously completely optional for adults to turn on on their um, credit or their debit card um, and they're not permanent. Um, so they either, at the moment, uh, with the eight firms that offer gambling blocks, if you turned on um, a gambling block with three of those firms at the moment, you could turn it off again straight away because it acts, it toggles, you can toggle it on and off like a light switch. Um, with four of them, including Starlings, it would act more like a time release lock, where if you wanted to deactivate the block and start gambling again, you would have to wait 48 hours. There would be a kind of cooling off period. Um, between you deciding to do that and you being able to gamble again um, and the, I think there's one bank at the moment that offers a that does offer a time release lock but it's 24 hours so I think one of the things that has come through from the research and other work that has been done um, and that uh, Alexandra talked about it as well is is the um, recognition as Matt was saying that actually uh, people need some time to uh, you know, if they decide that they want to start gambling again, giving people some time to think about it and consider whether that's the right thing for them is actually a positive um, feature, designed feature of those gambling blocks. Um, mm. I think there's some question about, you know, why 48 hours, but certainly in the survey work that we did as part of the review, people who responded thought that who were people with gambling issues, thought that it should be at least 48 hours, there was a lot of support
0: for a permanent gambling block as well amongst that particular community. Okay, Matt, if if, if a bank came to you tomorrow and asked you to prescribe a time limit, what time limit would you prescribe?
3: I think choice is important. And obviously, with the self-exclusion schemes, you see a greater breadth of choices for consumers here. I think a permanent block, I think a lot of our service users would want to commit to a permanent block. Um, six months, twelve months, longer, etc. I think I think those should be choices available to people. I'm also interested in the report as well. And again, I pay tribute to, the, to those people with lived experience, like Tony, who are incredibly helpful here. Um, there are other areas um, of positive friction as well that, that could be considered. Um, so, for example, in the report, it discusses things like. Um, Um, receiving a personalized message from your past self if you want to change your bank blocker in some way um, or alerting a friend or family member for example that you've you've, you're looking to make that decision those kinds of things are incredibly helpful for people who um, might be might have got into a situation where they have decided to stop their gambling there's an awful lot of harm behind them but as I was suggesting earlier, motivation is incredibly volatile, and gambling urges, when they arrive for people, can be really, really overpowering, and it focuses them onto the gambling behaviour, and it, and it prevents them from thinking about, you know, the longer-term consequences or the past harm and so on. It really does distort the way that you you're, you're making your decisions. So I mm-hmm. think all of these things are really important to put in the mix from our perspective, anyway. In um, when we're dealing with you know very severe gambling harm,
0: mm. Tony, um, what, what what would you like to see? Is 48 uh, hours uh, an arbitrary figure? Is it is it something you would change? How would you approach this?
2: From my point of view, in simple terms, uh, the greater the friction, uh, the greater the protection. Uh, so obviously, a simple on-off switch offers the least protection um and then obviously blocked permanently the the, the the greatest protection and the survey participants um reinforce that um so i think you know having a range of options is a good idea it, um i think 60 percent of your respondents in the survey said it should be um longer even than 48 hours um i i think yeah I think the longer the better so I think the minimum should be 48 hours as an absolute minimum um, and perhaps with additional measures you know when you're turning it off such which one of the banks um, has implemented where you would have to ring the bank up and have a discussion with them before they would agree to switching that back on I think that can be really useful um, that might also give them an opportunity to you know to to read back to you You know, a quote that you perhaps have put into the blocker Mm -hmm. when you turned it off um, about Mm -hmm. your former self. So I think those sort of measures, I think they're, you know, as as, as Matt was talking about there as well, I think, you know, um, they're great. So clearly, the the greater the friction, um, the the greater the protection. Having a permanent block um, as an option is really important, but it's really important as well that all the banks get on board with this discussion. So back to Alexandra's um, earlier point about UK finance um, engagement and, uh, collaboration across the industry because you know we need to limit the number of workarounds there are you know for people to go outside um of, of these um you yeah, tools that that really yeah. are helping people
0: but, alexandra it's, it's it's interesting here everyone will be interested as well eugene just pointed out that 48 hours was historically the cooling off period uh before you could gamble after joining a land-based casino but uh, alexandra it's it's interesting, this 48 hours uh, kind of a, a d- dilemma. Um, technically, what, what is possible from a bank's point of view in terms of the amount of control and customization that can be put into place there?
4: Well, we could we could put in any number of hours. Um, uh, I don't think it would make any difference, uh, to be honest. We put we chose 48 hours because that's what we thought people wanted and that's what seemed to be the consensus but um that's certainly something we can uh, look at one of the things we decided to do when we put our 48 hours um in was to put a little um message that comes up so if if you block gambling transactions and you um want to turn on gambling tr- transactions, a little message comes up. Um, I'm just trying to turn off gambling payments on my phone. And it says, um, if you're worried you spend more than you should on gambling, call the National Gambling Helpline now, and it gives the number and it links you to um, the Gamble Aware website. So we're trying to add a, an extra nudge in there um, to help people, but, but really, we, we took our cue from from you guys with the 48 hours. Mm.
0: So this is a really interesting question and kind of, um, Sharon, perhaps I can come to you first and then open it up between us. And that is, we've talked to about the 48 hours option, um, obviously putting limits on cash withdrawals, uh, dealing with the issue of cash transfers as well is really, really important. But we're getting to a situation where we've got, obviously, the uh, the uh, the Magpie program at Bristol funded by GambleAware. We've got the Gambling Commission funded money and mental health program. We've got the Behavioural Insights team doing research on gambling and financial services. We've got Gamcare as well uh, doing their their own uh, research around this and they all talk to each other. Um, But how do we best involve experts such as Tony and Matt and Alexandra in this discussion without duplicating uh, this this co-production and this involvement? Uh,
1: I think that's a great question, uh, Chris, which I don't have an easy answer to, I don't think. Um, we certainly have been trying to ensure as best we can and actually we said in our original kind of roadmap for the Magpie programme that we what we wanted as part of the programme was to bring together a kind of coalition of the willing to move this forward and that's great that we've got you know this part of the coalition on the call today and in the audience so I think that's a great start and we have been working keeping in close contact with Gamcare and Money and Mental Health and the Behaviour Insights team around the work that we're doing. So I think that's a great start. I think there is a question about, um, you know, that as Matt said, you know, the people with experience of gambling harm like Tony and so many others, um, they are the real experts here and they can help guide us in, in everything that we do. Um, and I, as I say, I don't have an answer to that, but I think, um, that that is something where actually a coalition of the willing could put some thought into that. I yeah. think for me, I'd be interested to hear what Tony thinks. I think, and I've heard discussions about this in other sectors where there's other experts uh, by experience and. How do we make sure that we value those people in the right way, and, and make sure actually that they they are remunerated for the insights and and the the great value that they bring to all of this work? Because you know I think that that's an outstanding question really for for this sector and for other
0: sectors. So Tony, how do how do you avoid ending up with a, a people's front of Judea where there are twenty different uh, you know groups? all working on the same issue and that puts a huge strain on experts by experience uh, as well. How, how would you like to see this handled?
2: Yeah well I I would sort of echo a lot of what Sharon has said there um, I, I think that this is um, you know it, it's obviously very challenging the more that we can do to bring together you know people from um, you know the, the, the regulators so that's the the, the FCA, UK finance, uh, the gambling commission, um, the, the, the big banks um, all the, the third sector charities that are working in this space, you know, together in some way to collaborate and have this discussion. I think it's really important to bring in a wide, um, um, a, a wide pool of, you know, expert by experience input and talent as well. I mean, I, I, I certainly, you know, for some hold quite blunt, blunt views on on what I think should happen. Um, I think that um, we need to make sure that, um, you know, others, you know. Um, feed into that process as well. Um, it's, it's, it's a conversation that I brought up um, um, with, the, with the Gambling Commission as well. I think that w- um, where, where we've got um, RET, so that's research, education and treatment funds being dispersed through the commissioning body, Be Gamble Aware, I think above a certain threshold um, of, uh, of monetary disbursement to the various organisations, there, there should be a formal panel um, within the receiving um, uh, organization and actually also um, on be Gamble aware themselves um, of expert by experience that, you know, helps to work through and inform some of these discussions so that it filters out. Um, and I don't know whether we could possibly do something like that in and around UK finance as well. I, I think that would be very valuable, but it's a, it's a difficult area. And I agree entirely with, you know, I think Sharon who said, we should be remunerated in some way for, for our expertise because, you know, we are working hard on this issue and we're informing uh, the discussion. And this is a discussion that affects millions of people up and down this country. Um, so it is an important area of work. Mm. So, yeah, yeah, that would be my comments. I just want me to
1: say, Chris, to answer to, to that point that um, I think we also, as the research um, clearly shows, um, that, that the gambling harm can stretch quite far and wide so it's people who are um, themselves gamblers who are experiencing problems but it's also it can be their family it can be their friends it can be their you know their children or um, others who are affected and I think it's really important to think about gambling harm in that wide context and actually what Matt was saying about the numbers you know actually the numbers who are affected in one way or another directly or indirectly are, are likely to be really significant and I think we ne- I think we're starting to understand what those issues are for for, for the other types of people affected but um, it's also really important to to bring them into the conversation.
4: I think also that the, the banking industry has got a duty to listen to customers um, and experts by experience. You know, it was Tony that really helped us get the gambling block over the line at Starling and uh, something very interesting happened at Starling recently. When lockdown happened, we introduced something called a connected card, which is a second debit card mm. you can get on your Starling account to give to a trusted friend or family member to go and get your groceries in if you're sheltering during the lockdown. And um, that there are controls on this card, it's linked to your account, but it can only ever have a maximum of 200 pounds on it. Um, it's got other security features. They can't use their at ATMs, can't use it for online. You know, can only use it basically to go into shops and buy things. And after we, we introduced those for people who are sheltering, a number of people with gambling issues contacted us and said, well, this is actually quite good um, for me because mm-hmm. if my partner has the account and they give me the connected, I've got a spending card, um, but I can't use it for gambling, and, and we hadn't done that w- with, with people's gambling issues in mind, but it, it, was, it was them mm-hmm. telling us that it helped them that made us think, oh, you know, there, there might be other solutions we can come up with other than the block or on top of the block, and so it's, it's you know, I don't want to put all the, all, all mm-hmm. the responsibility for solving this problem um, on, on uh, people like Tony but I do want to say we're so grateful for them and it's really important for the banks to open up ways that people it's easy for anyone to contact me because my phone number and email address is on our website but and people do and it's gratifying when they do but I think the banks need to open up the channels of communication so we can Mm -hmm. learn.
0: Okay I'm just going to come to some of these comments here. Uh, Alexandra a lot of support uh, for the work you're doing and Helen and others Uh, commending you on leading the UK finance work I don't know if you are leading the UK finance work it seems we've put you in charge of that now so (laughs) it's kind of hopefully they're 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 listening there um Matt a a question that's coming in for you Matt is kind of uh where do you think the financial services industry could make the biggest contribution to reducing gambling related harm I, I think you started talking about that a little bit in terms of affordability didn't you
3: Yes, I think it goes back to one of the other questioners as well. It's talking about defaults on this. It's it, it, um, for young people. It's it's clearly a really difficult area. Tony was acknowledging this earlier. There are there are no easy solutions, but it really irks me that everybody, not everybody, but but there's a bit of a hands-off approach here. Meanwhile, people are are, are you know unfolding into you know deep levels of harm that affect them and their families and and the harm that we see is absolutely appalling and to apportion the responsibility onto the individuals to manage themselves when what this process does is it takes away um you know your free choice to make decisions i mean it's just there's just so much ignorance about this that that it makes me feel very strongly that we need to think of a number of tools and solutions to help people and help people earlier on in this process as well and having in a, a, wide, a wider range of interventions that fit where they are in this and not wait mm. until they're at the cliff edge where you know I, I don't have the data in front of me but I should imagine the majority of people are, are, are starting to think about gambling blocks if they're aware of them after a great deal of harm has ensued mm. and I well, don't that's, think that's good enough
0: yeah that goes back to megan's earlier point about promotion tony we've got a question from mark and that is kind of uh, just very briefly if you can um what's the stop a gambling block actually uh, driving underground uh someone's spending so you don't all of a sudden you decide not to put it onto your main card because you're worried that your bank is going to be looking at what you're actually spending on uh could it could it actually hide the problem rather than help
2: um well that's an interesting question so thank you very much for that i think um alexandra touched on this earlier on that um in terms of you know um lending decisions um, banks are not looking at the you know whether you've activated a block um or not um and i think that's you know important um as as part of the process that if somebody chooses to um activate the block that they shouldn't then you know be questioned you know um by the bank as to their reasons or motivations for doing that um i i think uh when, when he said uh, referred to sort of driving it un- underground, was he also referring to um, your spend on other sites? Do you know that that, that aren't regulated? What was? the,
0: the I think, I think I, it was more taking it off the uh, the main slate with your provider and perhaps yeah. moving your spending to kind of an e wallet or s- somewhere else. Yeah.
2: Right. Okay. Well, I think this—you know—this is why it's so important to engage, you know, the, the financial ser- services sector really broadly, because obviously, e wallets um, providers, you know, they're they're a really, um, you know, big source of um, their channel of funds in, in in onto gambling sites. But you know, they can also implement these blockers. Um, and clearly, I think in terms of you know preventing workarounds, we need to have a consistent approach across mm. the whole financial services industry to stop exactly what you know the the questioner is referring to
0: so uh, a comment there from uh raminta is is around that standardization is um she's heard the uh, bank card blockers described in all different ways merchant code blockers card freezes card controls so maybe a common language matt did you want to come in
3: it was just a point that just reminded me from earlier that um you know when people have got have um, experienced severe gambling harm. The majority of our service users have been able to get access to loans and payday loans and other other forms of, of funding as well. And it it I just find it staggering really that when they've got such a history of of gambling transactions that that there isn't a greater level of of responsible lending, if we might call it that as well. Um, so yeah, that's just another point as well. That, that would be very very helpful if if um, you know if if that was in place it, it, it seemed it, you know again it seems to me that when they've they've been able to gamble for so long and have access to to loans and payday loans that um that's that's an area that that should have closer scrutiny and again the responsibility mm-hmm. needs to be shared here rather than loaded onto the individual to make you know to make the correct choices each time
0: yeah a comment that mark makes sharon i'm going to give you um the last couple of words, you, you and Jamie Evans, who who kind of led this piece of research, um, didn't just look uh, at, at, at banks and payment card providers, but you also looked at the, uh, the credit reference agencies and some of these wider issues. Do you just want to give us a flavour of what you think very briefly should happen there and then close with one last recommendation that perhaps uh, those working in financial services could take away?
1: Yeah, thanks, Chris. Um, no pressure, Ellen. Um, yeah,
0: we've got, you've got one minute.
1: <laughs> um, I think certainly um, Tony and Matt's points about payments, a really good one. There's over 170 ways to make online gambling transactions. So I think that's an area that needs to be looked at. And certainly participants in the review were really keen that that was looked at. In, in terms of access to credit, I think we have seen some movement there with two of the big credit reference agencies, Experian and Equifax publishing guidance on their websites for people who might want to add a note to their credit file as a safeguard against borrowing to gamble so it's not to say that you know lenders can see that you've got a gambling issue but actually it's just say it's in helping people to say to lenders I don't want to borrow anymore Um, so I think there's some positive movement there but completely to Matt's point about um, in in the research um, participants really couldn't understand when, you know, there was so much gambling transactions on their bank accounts and their credit card statements. Why, why it wasn't been picked up for the very point that Matt makes that they, they, when people are in that disordered gambling kind of um, space, they, they're not going to recognise it, that, you know, they've lost the ability to recognise that that is harmful. And so I think there was real um, frustration and desire for something to happen
0: there we've never had so many questions uh, as we've had on here sorry to those people whose questions we didn't quite get to but we do have a record of them uh, thank you we've reached the end of the discussion today i just want to thank uh, sharon uh, tony alexandra and matt for their time if you're interested in the pfrc report then you can get this at magpie that's the bird magpie.blogs dot bristol.ac.uk and if you enjoyed this podcast and webinar please search for vulnerability matters on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts these days so until our next episode thank you very much and goodbye